Hi, I guess we can go ahead and get started. Um, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Courtney Freer. I'm a research fellow at uh, LSE's Middle East Center, and we have with us today Ben Hubbard uh, from the New York Times. Um, for those who don't know, Ben is the Beirut Bureau Chief for the New York Times, an Arabic speaker with more than a decade in the Middle East. He's covered coups, civil wars, protests, jihadist groups, rotten fish as cuisine, uh, religion and pop culture for more than a dozen countries, including Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, and Yemen. And he also recently released this book, MBS, which I highly recommend. Um, really timely and really, um, really great read. I mean, I, I was telling Ben I read it in, in one sitting, so highly encourage it. And we're gonna talk about his book a little bit today. So basically Ben will talk for about uh, 10 minutes and then we'll open up to Q&A. Um, so if you have a question, just put it in the uh, Q&A dialog box and I'll go ahead and relay those um, over to Ben. Um, and before we get started, also the event is being recorded in case you want to listen again, share with your friends, um, whatever. So um, with that, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Ben. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I want to give a short introduction and quite broad just for people who either don't haven't been following kind of blow by blow in Saudi Arabia or have not yet, hopefully not yet read the book. Um, and, and so I think the, you know, the big, one of the biggest things to sort of realize here is that this, this period has been a time of tremendous dynamism in Saudi Arabia. If we do a little bit of time travel, sort of mental time travel, if you can sort of jump back to 2014 in Saudi Arabia, the country was a very different place than it was now. Uh, I started going in 2013, but 2014 is, is, is interesting, you know, and you'll see where this goes. Socially, the place was incredibly conservative. Women couldn't drive. They couldn't work in many professions. You would some, you know, parts of the cities, you would see them out and about, but, you know, very strict, you know, regulations on gender, gender, gender staying separated. Arts and music were frowned upon. They were not taught in schools or universities. There were no concerts. Most hotels didn't even play, you know, elevator music in the lobbies because music was frowned upon. Um, this was all because Saudi Arabia had, you know, one of the world's most conservative and, and socially restrictive interpretations of Islam, which people abroad know as Wahhabism. This was official state religion. This was taught at home, taught in schools, you know, exported abroad by various, kind, you know, by various Saudi institutions, you know, either independent or backed by the Saudi government. Um, and, and I would say that Saudis had a uh, kind of a limited ability to discuss their society and, and even criticize some things that the government was doing. There was at this time this new social media, social, media, social media phenomenon called Twitter that you may have heard about that was a big deal in Saudi Arabia. As soon as it came out, Saudis were crazy about Twitter and people created sometimes multiple accounts. They spent tremendous amounts of time on Twitter. And, and at the time, it was seen as a, a place where Saudis could really discuss things that were going on in their society, complain sometimes about things that they didn't like. You know, they wouldn't sort of go after specific individuals, but you know, they could talk in general about corruption or about mismanagement, about things in their cities whether development issues and things like that that they didn't like. Um, politically, kingdom was ruled by an elderly king, King Abdullah, who died in 2015. The Saudi military, which had spent many decades buying billions and billions of dollars worth of weapons from the United States, the UK, and other countries, had never really fought a war, had never been involved in a significant war. Governance was sort of handled by what was seen as an informal council of princes. These were basically senior members of the royal family who divided up the portfolios among themselves. And so you'd have a prince who was in charge of the National Guard, a prince who was in charge of internal security, a prince who was in charge of the defense ministry and the military. And there was this idea that they would sort of run the kingdom by a consensus system underneath the king. Policymaking tended to be very conservative. Everybody would say glacial. Glacial was the word that you always heard when you talked about policy in Saudi Arabia. It took forever for decisions to be made or for things to change. 
Um, at the time, there were tensions with the U.S. administration. The, the Saudis were not big fans of Barack Obama. They were angry over the way that his administration handled the uprisings of the Arab Spring. Uh, and they were, and then they sort of got more angry because of the Iran deal and the, the, the backroom negotiations that the Obama administration engaged in to get us there. Now, if you fast forward to 2020, it, it very quickly becomes clear how much has changed. Um, socially, you've had, you know, scores of conservative clerics who used to sort of run the show and define how things were supposed to be arrested. Many of them are still in prison. Some of them have been you know, put on trial and convicted of things. Some of them are under house arrest. Some of them just got the message that they should be quiet. And so they're just not promoting their views anymore publicly. You used to have religious police who would patrol public places. They've had their powers to arrest taken away. They still exist, but they don't have kind of the role in society that they would have had before. Women obviously can drive. This was a major change in 2018. They're, they can work in a number of professions that they had not been able to work in before. And this is not only sort of permitted, but actually encouraged. Um, you know, the Saudis are talking about the arts. You know, you have a lot of talk now that, you know, that the government wants to subsidize a whole string of world-class museums in the kingdom. Recently, they announced that they're going to start teaching art, uh, music, and theater in universities, which is something that never would have happened before. You know, they started, at least before COVID, they started having, you know, they were having concerts and you have, you know, everybody from Yanni to the Backstreet Boys showing up in Saudi Arabia and giving these concerts. The other, forget if it was last year, the year before, they had this electronic musical music festival out in the desert. I mean, things that you never would have imagined happening before. Um, politically, it's a very different place as well. Uh, it's, it's, it's adopted a much more assertive posture, some would say aggressive posture in the region much more interventionist in other countries in terms of really pushing for the kinds of policies that it wants to see. Um, you know, it's been involved in a five-year military intervention in Yemen, which has, you know, become a pretty nasty quagmire, huge uncounted numbers of civilians killed, um, front lines not moving very much. Um, there's been, you know, appears to be efforts by the Saudis now to try to get out of it, which is, which is difficult. But there's, you know, they've been involved in this long and long and nasty war on their southern border. We've seen efforts to intervene in the politics of Lebanon, uh, Iraq, other places in the region. There's you know, heightened rhetoric against Iran and, and, and sort of this regional Cold War going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran, whom they see as their biggest rival and foe in the region. Uh, more recently, there was an oil price war with Russia, obviously. Um, and inside of the kingdom, there's, I would say there's a much smaller margin for expression. Um, all of that sort of hope that people had that Twitter would be kind of this forum for, you know, sort of like a virtual town square for Saudis to get together and talk about things in their society. Some of that still exists, but a lot of it has been stamped out. I mean, there have been a lot of people who have been arrested, put on trial, punished in other ways for exp expressing themselves on Twitter and specifically for criticizing government policies. There's a very famous case of a well-known entrepreneur and economist who questioned the wisdom of the um, IPO of Saudi Aramco and is now on trial for terrorism. Um, and, you know, basically on charges that nobody outside of the kingdom thinks are not political. Um, Saudi Arabia somewhat remarkably has an incredibly strong relationship with the Trump administration. This, I think, is, is really one of the biggest accomplishments in a way of Mohammed bin Salman. This is something that I don't think people expected to happen before the election. We can talk a little bit more about that and sort of the dynamics of that. And this idea of kind of the council of princes and, you know, senior members of the royal family coming together, that system has been almost entirely replaced because everything that we've talked about, all of these changes, everything really comes back to one person who is Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, he became crown prince and his father became king in 2015, began delegating tremendous power to his son. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman becomes crown prince in 2017. And 
And throughout that process, he's really restructured the way that power is used and exercised in Saudi Arabia to make sure that it all kind of routes back up to him. And there's just very little that happens in the kingdom right now that doesn't somehow come back to him or that he doesn't have a, a role in in some way. And so in my book, uh, which I hope if you haven't read, you'll, you'll go out and read, I really wanted to answer the question. I, I wanted to tell the story of how this happened. Um, it kind of answered the question of who is Mohammed bin Salman? He was, very, he was not very well known before 2015, even among people who were playing, paying very close attention to Saudi Arabia. 2015, he sort of comes out of nowhere, uh, begins sort of amassing this tremendous power, and then you know, be, becomes by far the most dynamic leader that we've seen in the kingdom in a very, very long time. And I wanted just to try to answer the questions of who is he, where did he come from, and how did he do it? How did he manage to, you know, in this country that has this, you know, royal family with its traditions and has this sort of this idea of consensus leadership and many, you know, deference to authority, deference to seniority and many princes who are older than Muhammad bin Salman, how did he manage to sort of inherit this much power uh, in such a short period of time between, you know, roughly from 2015 through 2000, I guess, 19 and then into 20? Um, so anyway, that, that's just to kind of give an overview. I'm happy to take questions and, and let that guide the conversation. I, I don't, you know, I don't, don't have to give a lecture. So I'm more than happy to take any questions about, you know, about the book or about other, other aspects of Saudi Arabia. Great. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that struck me in the book is just how much has happened in such a short period under MBS's leadership. And, and I think one thing you do quite well is also trace his rise, which was not at all obvious, I mean, even for kind of Saudi watchers. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you about was actually, I mean, you had an impressive amount of access. Uh, you talk about um, a meeting with the Grand Mufti himself, where I guess you, he kind of encouraged you to convert. And I wanted to ask, I mean, what was it like writing a book about MBS during that time? I mean, was it difficult? I mean, kind of how, how did you go about doing that? Well, it was a, it was a long process, and I didn't, I didn't start writing the book until quite late in the process. I mean, I... I started going to Saudi Arabia in 2013 was my first trip. It was when I, I used to work with Associated Press. I, I got a job at the New York Times and then, you know, part of my portfolio, they said, why don't you do Saudi Arabia? You know, try to get a visa and if you can get in, then, you know, you should, you should help cover Saudi Arabia. And so I did and I got in and, and then you can almost, you could almost graph kind of my access to the kingdom over the next number of years. And it would look exactly like this. Um, so, so basically in the first years, it was the sort of the good old days of King Abdullah. Things were very slow. The bureaucracy was sort of glacial, as I mentioned, and, and the process was sort of, I would apply for a visa. I would wait a number of months. I think the first visa I got was seven days, non-renewable. I showed up in the kingdom. I went to see the people at the information ministry and they said, oh, we can't help you set up any interviews. And then my seven days sort of raced by and I had to leave. And then I think I later got two weeks and then. And then it, it sort of came up, and, and actually after Mohammed bin Salman came in, and after King Salman became king, it did get better for journalists. There was, there was a lot of talk about openness, about transparency. These were very much buzzwords that kind of the, the, the MBS crowd wanted to use. And I think it was true for a time. Um, and it became easier to get visas. I mean, I got, at one point I got a three-month multi-entry visa, and then I got you know, sort of longer. And at one point I got a five-year multi-entry visa. And that's personally when I started thinking about doing a book. And, and part of the reason was, you know, there are, when you, when you compare the books about Saudi Arabia to the books about many other Arab countries, there are just many fewer of them. And there are many fewer about life inside of Saudi Arabia. You know, you can find great books about Saudi history, about aspects of Saudi politics, things like that. They tend to be much more on the academic side. But if you sort of compare the number of books about a country as important and as large and as powerful as Saudi Arabia to the number of books about a country like Lebanon, 
I mean, there's just like Lebanese because, you know, there's all kinds of journalists and researchers who lived in Lebanon and visited regularly and did this. And Saudi Arabia has always had access problems for journalists and researchers. So, uh, so I sort of figured, okay, well, I've got this, you know, unique opportunity. I'm based in the region and I have this five-year multi-entry visa, which means I can go and come to Saudi Arabia. And so let me try to, you know, find characters and people living through this time of change and sort of follow up with them over time, see how their lives have changed. And it didn't really work out that way because, you know, we started writing things about Mohammed bin Salman and some of the decisions he was making that they didn't like very much. And that visa got canceled. And then it sort of got progressively harder for me to get visas until I, you know, now I haven't gotten one since mid 2018. So, um, so in terms of the access, a lot of it was just that I was spending a lot of time there. And so I had a lot of time. I mean, it's a, it's a place where culturally everything is based on relationships. So you spend time there, you meet people, you realize this person is related to that person, but this person knows that person. You go with this person, takes you to have coffee with that person, sort of leads you to the next person. And so that's, you know, that's kind of how those things work. I just had a lot of time inside the kingdom to sort of get to know different people. And, and even when I started having access issues later, what that left me with was kind of a whole network of relationships of people that I knew were connected, were connected to different things that I could go back to, to get information, verify information, cross check things. And so that later became important with the book. I didn't really decide to do a book about MBS until probably, I think it was 2018. So it was quite late in the process. And it was really kind of the Ritz and the Hariri situation, the, the forced resignation of Saad Hariri of Lebanon that, that I think made a lot of us realize, okay, this is, this, this is a force that we don't see very often in the Middle East, you know, somebody who's going to, you know, do these kinds of things. And then, so that's when I sort of realized, okay, the story is not just sort of Saudi Arabia and things like that, but who is this person, you know, because he's going to be a major force in the Middle East for a long time to come. And that's when I kind of started, you know, looking at how to do the book. Oh, great. That's um, fascinating. Yeah. And it really shows how much time you spent in Saudi through the book. Um, you have amazing interviews, amazing material. Um, and I guess we have a couple of questions coming up, a couple of them related to uh, Yemen. So do you think the botched Yemen adventure will make or break the crown prince? One question. And also kind of what do you think MBS's next steps could be in Yemen? Um, you know, will he bow to international condemnation or continue? So kind of how does, how does Yemen fit into MBS's legacy, I suppose? Well, it'll definitely be part of his legacy. I mean, it was one of the earliest things that he did. You know, his father became king in January 2015, very soon named Mohammed bin Salman, who nobody, you know, very few people had heard of who didn't really have, you know, doesn't have any real military experience. He had served as an assistant to his father in the short period that his father was the defense minister, but that's not real, like, military experience. You know, and within a few months, he had launched the Saudi military into this intervention in Yemen, which has become a disaster. Um, it's become a humanitarian disaster. And you know, you've had cholera and famine and all sorts of terror, you know, now COVID, of course, spreading in Yemen. It's been really a black mark on the kingdom. So it will be part of his legacy. Will it make or break him? I mean, it, you know, it, it's hard to say where it will take him. I think what, you know, a more kind of probably productive way to look at, look at it is it's just been a drag on a lot of other things that he wants to do. It's been kind of a constant um, PR problem for him. You know, in the United States, there's been a lot of, you know, discomfort with all of the weapons that we've sold to Saudi Arabia and to see them used in this way. For many, you know, for, for most of the Saudi-U.S. relationship, there was kind of this unwritten understanding that they were never going to use these weapons, that we were selling them. They're good for the U.S. economy. Saudis need them for their own protection, but they also know if they really get into trouble, the U.S. is going to come save them or, you know, come, come help them defend themselves. Um, nobody really believed that the Saudis were going to sort of take all these jets and bombs and everything and go to war with them. And so there was a lot of discomfort, 
I think in the U.S. military and security establishments when they saw how this was happening and that, you know, now the Saudis are flying American jets, dropping American bombs, pilots sometimes trained in the United States or by Americans in Saudi Arabia, you know, dropping bombs on weddings, funerals, you know, civilian, other, other civilian activities and things like that. There was a lot of discomfort and you've seen movement in both houses of you know, both houses of Congress to, to try to stop the weapons sales, which have been vetoed by the Trump administration. And so just how long this war has gone on and how, how bad it's looked has certainly been a drag on him. I mean, do I think it means that he's going to sort of lose his bid to become king? No, I don't think so, because I, I don't think we're quite there. But it's been a financial burden on the kingdom. The Saudis, as far as I'm aware, have never really put out an estimate of how much it costs them. But it's in, you know, it's definitely been many, many millions of dollars. Um, and it's just, you know, it, it, it looks bad. I think, you know, in terms of what he does next, there's been a good number of indications, I'd say, in the last six months or so that the Saudis would like to get out of this thing. They'd like to find a way out. The big problem that they have now is that they're, you know, they, they, they've tried everything that they seem to be able to do militarily against the Houthis, who were, you know, so the rebel group in, in Yemen that took over the country's northwest. They captured the capital city in 2000, uh, 2014. And... They, they they haven't been able to beat them. The Saudis haven't been able to kick them out of the capital. And so, you know, what else are you going to do except find a way to negotiate with them? And we're at this weird point where the Houthis don't really want to negotiate. They're this scrappy little rebel group. They've managed to take over the capital city of their country. Um, everything's kind of a disaster. But the only way that I think there could be sort of a peace settlement, somebody has to find a way to offer them something that they want enough to stop fighting. You know, they're a group that's very good at fighting. They're not very good at politics. And I think that they're quite happy just kind of to have the situation that is, as it is. So it's going to, if there is going to be some kind of a negotiated settlement, it's going to take a lot of really creative diplomacy to figure out what do you do with the Houthis to sort of get them out of the capital city when, when nobody can do it militarily. That's true. And this is kind of a related question touched on the, the U.S.-Saudi relationship, which has obviously been strong under Trump. Um, one question was, if Biden wins the presidential election, what will happen to MBS's relations with the U.S.? I mean, do you think there could be more pressure from, from a Biden administration, um, for instance, on, on arms sales? And, and I guess, I mean, this, uh, the person who asked the question also talked about, you know, how MBS has really done well in terms of uh, co-opting or, or jailing um, any potential competitors, uh, other princes who could um, potentially, you know, have, have good relationships with the U.S., I guess, MBN most prominently. So, I mean, I guess, how, how do you see this relationship moving forward or changing under Biden or even changing if, if Trump is reelected? Um, is, it, is it kind of irreparably harmed now or not so much? Well, I think, I think first we have to recognize how remarkable the, the relationship between the Trump administration and Mohammed bin Salman really is. <clears throat> I mean, if you go back to Donald Trump's history before he became president and even into the campaign, I mean, this is somebody who had a long history of saying pretty nasty things about Muslims in general and pretty nasty things about the Saudis specifically. I mean, there, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can find clips of them during one of the debates with Hillary Clinton sort of bashing her with you know, saying that she's taking money from these, you know, from these Gulf areas. He mentioned Saudi Arabia and Qatar and, you know, but he sort of uses that as an avenue of attack because the Clinton Foundation had received some funding. He uses that as an avenue of attack. You know, he's just very, very critical of them. And, and I, you know, there's, and I, I, I talk about this in the book. I mean, I think it's one of kind of the surprising successes of Mohammed bin Salman and his team is the fact that they were able to, I think they were as shocked as many people were when Donald Trump won the election. And they very quickly managed to sort of get a profile of this administration, figure out how to appeal to it. And then they made a very, you know, a very successful pitch. It was so successful that, you know, they managed to get Donald Trump to sort of break 
presidential precedent and make the first foreign trip of his presidency to Riyadh of all places. He didn't go to the UK. He didn't go to Canada. He didn't, you know, he went to, he went to Riyadh and they turned it into this big international summit. And so since then, Trump, the Trump administration has very much been a firewall around Mohammed bin Salman in terms of criticism from other parts of the US government. You know, you've had action in Congress to try to try to scale back or stop the arms sales. Trump has vetoed those. You've had criticism on all kinds of other different things, but the Trump administration has always protected him. It's very clear after the killing of Khashoggi, which we can talk about, Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who was killed in Istanbul in 2018. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to speculate too much about after the election, partly because we don't know who's going to win. And then even if, even if there is a change in administration, who knows? I mean, if I had predicted before Trump won what his relationship with Mohammed bin Salman was going to be, I probably would have been wrong. And so I don't sort of want to make the same mistake with the Biden administration. I, I think the only thing that I would say is that it, what we have seen kind of a general increase in anger at, and I would say distrust of the Saudis in a broad swath of American institutions. So you have a lot of people in the State Department who are pretty frustrated with a lot of the human rights issues, you know, people just being arrested, put on trial for things, you know, peaceful, nonviolent activists getting accused of very, you know, harsh things. You know, you've got people, you know, certainly people in the intelligence agencies and security services who are not happy with the way that some of the older members of the family who have very good relationships with them have been treated. Some have been arrested and put under house arrest and things like that. So there's a lot of distress of MBS on that side. Um, Congress, obviously, un you know, and I think even the Pentagon uncomfortable with the way that this war has been prosecuted with a lot of American weaponry. Um, it's unlikely that a new administration will have such an intimate relationship with the Saudis. I think there's a good chance that a new administration would probably be more, more reflective of some of these views that are more, that have become more common in other parts of the U.S. government. Um, I think Trump is still quite exceptional in that he doesn't, I mean, MBS in a lot of ways has become sort of toxic in the U.S., um, you know, if you look at, he came to the U.S. In, in early 2018, he took this remarkable trip where he traveled across the country. He went to, I think, five cities, the District of Columbia. He met with everybody. He met with Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mike, Mike Bloomberg, two Bushes. You know, he met with the two former Bush presidents, um, Oprah Winfrey. I mean, he just took this kind of remarkable trip. And all of these people took time out of their schedules to meet the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. And if he came to the U.S. right now, I just don't think these people would do that. You know, I just think there's many, many fewer people who are going to want to have a photo op with this person. Now, what that means for the next president, I don't know. But, um, you know, there's, there, there, is, there has been a shift, I think, in many parts of the U.S. government and the view on Saudi Arabia. So we'll have to see kind of how that works out with the next administration. Yeah, a lot of uncertainty. Um, and I guess you, you mentioned, of course, the, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And one question kind of related to that is, how do you see the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Turkey now? Um, Turkey has recently started the trial of Saudis involved in the, in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in absentia. So, I mean, kind of what's, how do you see that shaping up? I mean, and, and of course, you have adding in Turkey's relationship with Qatar and Saudi's continuing um, kind of blockade of Qatar. So how, how, do, how do you see that relationship working, I guess, the, the Turkish-Saudi? Yeah, I mean, we've, it's never gotten to the point that, you know, it's not like, you know, I think when the Saudis look around the region, you know, their biggest enemy is Iran. They look at the Iranians and they say, these are the people, you know, we have ideological problems with them, religious problems with them, political problems with them, strategic problems with them. And, and I think that they, they see their biggest strategic threat as Iran and its sort of militia proxies around the region, whether it's Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen, various militia groups working in Iraq, things like that. That's what really keeps the Saudis up at night. Turkey has never made it up to the neck, made it up to that level. They've never broken, you know, even after 
Khashoggi was killed, they never broke off diplomatic relations or anything like that. But Turkey is, is sort of part of another, you know, you have kind of the quote unquote resistance access, you know, Iran and its allies in the region, you know, Syria, Hezbollah, that, that group. And then you have sort of, you know, the, the, the Qatar Muslim Brotherhood, Turkey kind of access that the Saudis don't like, um, you know, other, other than Qatar, they haven't sort of broken off relations with Turkey. But they very much see Turkey as sort of somebody working across purposes in the region. They were uncomfortable, certainly, with the way that Turkey got involved. And, you know, in the Arab Spring, in certain ways, Turkey was close to Muslim Brotherhood groups around the region and things like that. Um, you know, the, how the whole Khashoggi thing was handled certainly didn't improve relations between the two. You know, the fact that Turkey's not putting these on trial. My understanding is that the trial is somewhat more symbolic than anything else. I mean, there's no chance that Saudi, is, that Saudi Arabia is going to extradite any of these people who are on trial. And I think from what I understand under, under Turkish law, they can't actually sentence people in absentia. So the trial will open and it could have some sessions, but it's eventually going to stop because they don't actually have access to the suspects. Um, but, but the fact that Turkey is going ahead with it, they're obviously, obviously trying to sort of remind the world that this, this crime happened on their territory. And, and um, so we'll see. I mean, but in a way, there's kind of like, it's not quite a cold war because you do have diplomatic relations, but there's, you know, there are countries that are in a lot of ways working across purposes at different places in the region and are not big fans of what the other one is up to. There's a couple of questions about kind of um, how this, how the response has been for you. Um, one question is, is about kind of basically say, citing that often when foreign scholars or journalists write about MBS, they become attacked, especially on Twitter. Um, so was that a concern for you? And then another question about kind of how the reaction has been uh, from from kind of your Saudi colleagues and, and people you interviewed, which I think you touch on a bit in the book. Um, but if you could elaborate on that, I believe you were you were hacked as well at some point. Um, I was, well, I was targeted. As far as we know, I was not hacked. I may have been hacked. We, okay, we, we weren't able to confirm that, but I was definitely targeted. Um, I mean, in terms of attacks on Twitter, I, I just don't care that much. I mean, certainly, I you know, I've, I mean, I've been attacked on Twitter all the time for you know, coverage that, the coverage that, you know, Saudis find unflattering or that they find, you know, doesn't represent their country well or whatever. And it's not just Saudi. We get that from, you know, pretty much anything that we write around, write about around the region. There's always going to be people who sort of attack us. I just blow most of it off. Sometimes, to be honest, I learn from it. Sometimes I'll, I'll read it and be like, oh, that's a good point. You know, like I didn't, I wasn't aware of that particular regulation that this person brought up or yeah, maybe I worded that the wrong way or something like that. I mean, I tried to, you know, I tried to at least be open-minded to that or whatever, but a lot of just the, you know, the criticism, a lot of it, I just kind of blow off. And, you know, if I don't feel like I can sort of learn something from it that will allow me to better sort of represent what's going on. Um, I mean, I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from individual Saudis. I mean, I think individual Saudis that I've gotten to know over the years, um, people who were, you know, either involved in the book in various ways or people that I met over the years and just saying, you know, you, you, you did a good job of kind of describing this period and what's going on and things like that. I've had no official response whatsoever from Saudi officials, from the Saudi government, which I, it's kind of what I expected. Um, you know, if they did want to tell me anything about it and get in touch, then, you know, they, they know how to find me. But, you know, for whatever reason, they, they've just been quiet about it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But I, and I think around the region, it's been well received. I think, you know, MBS has really been kind of the talk of the town across the Middle East. I mean, I was surprised, even before working on the book, how often I would be, you know, at an, at an event or at a dinner or something like that in Jordan or Beirut or, you know, other places around the region. And eventually people would start talking about Mohammed bin Salman. And who is this guy and what is he up to? Is he a great hope? Is he dangerous? What is he? And 
So I think there's been a lot of curious curiosity in other places around the Middle East as well. Yeah, and not, not only in the Middle East, also, I mean, I'm here in Atlanta, a lot of questions about MBS and, and the future mm -hmm. of Saudi Arabia. And, you know, it, there's a lot, of, a lot of stories about him all the time and a lot of confusion about kind of what's going on, I suppose, um, what the future holds for Saudi. Um, and a couple of questions that I'm getting are about kind of the rivalry among princes in domestic politics of Saudi Arabia in the future. Um, you know, is this kind of continuing or has MBS successfully co-opted everyone? Another related question is, you know, is there a possibility of a third person emerging from the Saudi power map after the king and crown prince? Who could be such a person? Who are kind of the likely candidates? I mean, I know it's kind of, it's hard to, um, to know because I think few of us would have uh, predicted that MBS would have become as powerful as he yeah. has. Um, but yeah, has he kind of co-opted everyone or is there possible other power centers? Yeah, I mean, I really try to stay out of the fortune telling business just because, you know, it's not my job and it's, it's you know, and it's, it's, it's a bit risky. Um, I, I think just looking at the current moment and from what we do know, I mean, I, I guess I should preface this and say that, you know, there is a lot about Saudi Arabia that's very opaque, both in terms of what's going on on different levels of society, you know, what's going on in various parts of the royal family, things like that. It's not like we, you know, we, we have, you know, front, even, even people who are very well connected, I think, in a very, very small view of sort of what's really going on. So we have to be conscious just of how little we actually know about the internal dynamics. From where I sit and from the work that I've done and the interviews that I've done, it's just, it's hard to see how someone else could emerge from the royal family right now and pose a significant threat to Mahmoud bin Salman. I think there's a few reasons. One, I think, is that he, part of it is that his father is still alive. I think that there were a number of things that he did that I'm, I'm, I'm sure that angered other parts of the family. I mean, throwing people in the Ritz-Carlton and taking their money away, that certainly angered a lot of people, um, both, both you know, relatives of some of the princes who were in there and other people who worked for them or were in business with them for various reasons. That made a lot of people mad. You know, there have been you know, treatment of Mohammed bin Nayef, the previous crown prince, that certainly made a lot of people mad. There's been various things like that. Um, and I think, you know, I think... What, MBS kind of had two things going for him. One was that his father was king, and that and that um, Saudi Arabia and I think the royal family, and generally they're very they're very uh, cautious. I think they understand that in general they live very well because they're you know members of this royal family. And if the house comes down, it's going to come down on everybody. And so you know I think that there's that aspect. You don't want to rock the boat too much and risk you know sort of destabilizing everything. There's a lot of deference for. King Salman is, you know, sons of King Abdulaziz, the founder of the kingdom, very well respected inside the family. I think even people who were uncomfortable with things that MBS was doing would not directly challenge him out of deference for King Salman. Um, and I think MBS, there was almost kind of an aspect of shock and awe to the way that he did it, you know, the way that he managed to eliminate people who could have been potential rivals from their positions, um, take away in some cases their money, take away their patronage networks, take away the ministries that they were in charge of. And he did, you know, it's, again, it's one of these things that if you were to go back in time and sort of ask Saudi experts, they would have told you, you can't do that. That's impossible. You can't just wake up one morning and take the power, you know, take power away from the religious police. Or you can't just like, you know, shove Mohammed bin Nayef out of the crown prince role and put him under house arrest. Like, you just kind of can't do that. You can't lock people in the Ritz-Carlton and take their money away. Well, he did it. He did all three of those things. And, and I think he just kind of, it was so unexpected because it was so, so far out from the kind of behavior that people were used to, that they just kind of didn't know what to do, you know, people, you know, and I think by the time people did realize what was going on and how he was collecting this much power, it was almost too late. So, you know, who knows what's gonna happen in the future. Um, 
you know, when King Salman passes away, there, you know, we might see some kind of movement. It's very hard to predict where it could, could come from just because, you know, I think, you know, MBS really does, as far as we can tell, have his, have his hands on all the levers of power. Um, exactly. So one, one question is about, I mean, MBS's play for power relied quite heavily on gaining legitimacy amongst Saudi youth. Um, so what are your views on what young Saudis currently think about the direction of the country and their prospects and how long do you think their kind of patience can hold? What are the main concerns over the future and kind of how, how strong is their continued belief that MBS is the one who can deliver kind of a, a diversified, uh, yeah. modern, I suppose, uh, Saudi Arabia? I, I mean, I wish I could answer. I wish I could provide a better answer for. It. I haven't been in Saudi Arabia since early 2018. Uh, it's and it's it's very hard to gauge these things from abroad because people, you know, um, people are nervous about talking to media. I think they're specifically nervous in in many cases of talking to the New York Times, and so it's hard for me to gauge. I, I think on one hand, I think it's true that like there there was a lot of popularity. You know, MBS did have a lot of popularity among young Saudis. It's a very very young kingdom. I think it's what 22 million citizens and about two thirds of them are under age 30. So you have a huge number of young people and these are sort of not your traditional view of Saudis in a lot of ways. I mean, they tend to be very branched into what's going on in the rest of the world. You know, for many years and perhaps still today, they were the, you know, the highest consumers of YouTube in the world. Um, many of them probably watch the same stuff on Netflix that you and I watch. I mean, they know a lot about what's going on in the rest of the world. And, and I think a lot of them were quite happy to see some of these old things disappear. The women wanted to drive. They wanted to be able to get jobs and drive themselves to work. Um, people wanted to go to concerts. They wanted to have movie theaters. And so I think there was, you know, at least in certain parts of society, there was a lot of popularity with that. I mean, I, I think it's, I, I don't think we can assume that all young Saudis are liberals. I'm, I'm sure that there are young Saudis who are also conservative and who still sort of look back to the old way that the kingdom saw itself as being this kind of bastion of, you know, what they consider the most correct interpretation of Islam. We don't hear from those kinds of Saudis very often because they sort of realize that, you know, they could get themselves in trouble by criticizing the changes too much. Um, I mean, I think when it, you know, people don't, I think people in the West don't like it when I say this sometimes, but on one hand, like popularity doesn't really matter that much. I mean, at the end of the day, it's an absolute monarchy. It's an autocracy. MBS is never going to have to like go into a runoff with somebody else to see who gets to become crown prince or who gets to become king. You know, it's obviously easy for him, easier for him if people are happy and if they're excited about the changes and things like that. But, you know, they would have to be incredibly unhappy for it to, you know, for, for them to be able to stop him from doing anything, you know, as we've seen from plenty of other autocratic places in the region. Um, I mean, I think that, but I think when it, when you look sort of forward at the youth, I mean, I think the big question, I think, in terms of how much he can fulfill their expectations really comes back to the economy. I mean, it's nice to have a movie theater. It's great if you're a young woman to be able to get a driver's license and go to the university and get a job as a lawyer or, you know, doing something that, you know, your mother or your grandmother wouldn't have been able to do. Like, that's great. And, and I think that, you know, there is legitimate reason for people to be excited about that. The question really comes down to the economy. I mean, they have, you know, even before COVID and even before the oil price crash, I mean, they had serious economic, you know, serious issues with their economic model. You basically had, you know, the government employed two thirds of working Saudis um, and you had all of these young people, you know, the estimates were, you know, hundreds of thousands of young Saudis coming out of university every year looking for jobs or entering the job market. Where are all the jobs going to come from? And so, you know, even though people might be happy about the social changes and about those sorts of things, the question is really, okay, five years out, 10 years out, where are the jobs going to come from for all of these young people? And if they find themselves, you know, getting into their 30s and like 
not really having a full-time job, having a you know standard of living that's significantly less than what their parents had, they might be less excited about the fact that they can go to a concert or you know go to a movie. So you know if he's really going to deliver for the young people, it's got to be on the economy because because that's what's going to you know I think make the biggest difference for them going forward. Absolutely, and there there are a couple of questions about kind of how the COVID-19 pandemic has now affected prospects for Vision 2030, specifically some of the mega projects like NEOM. Um, so, I mean, I, I, obviously it's impossible to know kind of what will happen moving forward. Um, but I, it seems now, I mean, from what I've read at least this week, that there's an insistence on the part of the conference in particular that these projects will move forward. Um, but do you, do you see the COVID-19 pandemic as kind of fundamentally changing the economic calculus for MBS or, or should it? Um, and is, I mean, kind of will Vision 2030 continue to, to be you know, possible, I guess, moving forward? Well, it'll, I mean, I think Vision 2030 was a, was a very tall order before COVID. You know, if you look at the targets that were laid out in Vision 2030, I mean, they're incredibly idealistic. I think many people would argue they're just unrealistic. Um, so, you know, they, but in, in any case, you know, Mohammed bin Salman had his work cut out for him to say that we're going to, you know, we are going to change this many things in our society in this amount of time. You know, we're going to diversify what's an economy that's almost entirely based on oil, away from oil. We're going to create a mining sector a weapons production sector, a tourism sector, an entertainment sector, and we're going to, you know, private sector jobs that are going to employ all these. I mean, it's just hugely, hugely ambitious. And there's not, there aren't really any countries that have ever been so dependent on one resources and have managed to create fully diversified economies. So COVID is just going to make it that much harder. I mean, the Saudis did have a lot of money to spend. You know, they did have a lot that they could have invested in these things. Um, you know, the, the decline in the oil price made that more difficult because they're running budget deficits. And COVID is just going to make it worse. You know, and that's not Mohammed bin Salman's fault. I mean, like every other world leader, there's no way that he saw it coming or that he sort of could have planned for it. But it will just, you know, it'll mean that the budget is even tighter for the investments that he would have liked to make in these, in these other sectors. There are a couple of questions also coming up about um, Iran. Um, surprised it's taken us this long, I guess, to get, to get to Iran, but I mean, to what extent is fear of Iran a unifying force in Saudi Arabia? Um, you know, how do you see a potential evolution in the Saudi approach towards Iran, especially given that Saudi does seem to want to kind of get out of Yemen somehow, somehow or another? So, I mean, how, how do you see this moving forward in terms of the Iran-Saudi uh, relationship? Um. I mean, it's hard, you know, it's hard to sort of, talk, you know, generalize about how Saudis feel about Iran. You know, it's a big country. There's very little public opinion polling that, that I would consider reliable or widespread, so, you know. So, um, but I, I would, you know, I, I do think there's a lot of distrust of Iran, certainly among sort of the, you know, the power elite in Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of concern about things that they're going to do. Iran made it very clear how much pain it can cost to Saudi Arabia with very little investment last August when they attacked the Aramco facilities and they knocked out, you know, they attacked two, two important Aramco facilities and knocked, you know, knocked off a huge amount of Saudi oil production for a certain period of time. So that, you know, if nothing else, that makes it very clear that this is not just an ideological thing. It's not just, uh, it's not just something that keeps them up at night, but like Iran actually can do things that cause them a tremendous headache. So I do think it's true that there's, you know, the Saudis do have legitimate concerns here. Um, what was interesting after that attack, I mean, we, we had, the first thing is we did not have Donald Trump sort of run to the Saudis' aid on that. You know, he didn't go bomb Iran as a way of sending the message that you can't strike Saudi Aramco and you can't, you can't hit Saudi Arabia. And so, 
in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, I, you know, that sort of created a bit of nervousness of like, we thought the deal was that, you know, the United States would back us up on this stuff, you know, for the stability of oil markets and regional stability and things like that. And Trump didn't, you know, he just, he just didn't want to do it. So that caused a lot of concern. And then we actually saw, you know, there, there were, you know, we, we, we did reporting about sort of back channel talks starting up between Saudi and Iran, not, not direct, but, you know, basically going through um, other nations in the region that have relationships on both sides, you know, most notably Iraq and Pakistan, talking to the, you know, the Iraq, you know, it was Iraqi prime minister and the, and, and um, Pakistani prime minister that basically did some sort of go between, go between work that wasn't set out to sort of restore diplomatic relations or lead to some kind of a peace treaty, but just as a way of bringing the temperature down. And that seems to have been somewhat successful. Um, I think that they have, I think the respective sides scaled back a bit on their rhetoric against the other people. We, you know, we, we haven't seen any other attacks since last August. And so that's certainly a good, uh, certainly a good sign. So I, I, th I do think that there was an awareness in Saudi Arabia that this was something that needed to be managed and, and you know, that there was an attempt to try to find a way to do that to at least, you know, keep the temperature down so that it doesn't boil over again. I guess, I guess kind of staying on regional ties and things going on there, are a couple of questions about the relationship between MBS and MBZ, uh, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi. I mean, early on, we saw a lot of stories about this kind of mentorship relationship that MBZ was kind of, uh, kind of helping out MBS, uh, taking him under his wing. There was, I guess, they went on this camping trip together, and then there was talk of this, this very tight relationship between them. I mean, is that still the case? Um, and there's also a couple of questions, I mean, a lot of, about the Qatar crisis, I guess, as it related to this, um, and because a lot of times you hear that, that really it was MBZ who wanted to um, kind of led the charge against, against Qatar as, as a regional danger, and that MBS you know, was on board with this as well, with isolating Qatar. I mean, has, has any of this calculus shifted at all um, between MBS and MBZ, especially vis-a-vis -vis Qatar? I mean, I think the case of the Emirates is it's 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 very interesting, you know, because if you look at the countries in the in the Gulf Cooperation Council, I mean, Saudi Arabia is really the giant, you know, that everybody else in the region has to deal with. You know, if you're little Kuwait or if you're little Oman or if you're, you know, these countries are, you know, the pop their populations are small, their militaries are small, and Saudi Arabia is it's a giant. I mean, it's a giant in terms of the amount of money that it wields, in terms of its sort of religious significance, in terms of its military significance. So everybody has to kind of deal with Saudi Arabia and you can't sort of get on Saudi Arabia's bad side or you pay a price for it. Um, and, and the case of the Emirates is really interesting because you have, going back to before King Salman became king, you know, the Emirates had, had, had been sort of interested itself in developing more of an independent regional policy. <clears throat> and I think that privately there were a lot of leaders, you know, officials and leaders in the Emirates that were pretty uncomfortable with Saudi Arabia. They didn't really like the whole Wahhabism thing. They were, you know, you can go read in the WikiLeaks of them complaining about the Saudis and saying, you know, this is governed by a place who listens to these clerics who think that the world is flat. I mean, they're like Emirates officials telling Americans this in the WikiLeaks. And, uh, and, and so what, what's interesting is sort of when Mohammed bin Salman sort of emerges from the shadows in 2015, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed very quickly recognizes this guy wants to do things differently. He's not going to keep the same Saudi Arabia that the rest of us have kind of had to deal with that has, you know, women can't drive and, you know, clerics, you know, the Wahhabi clerics are super powerful and all this, like this is somebody who wants to do something different. And so he very quickly, he also had sort of a longstanding beef with Mohammed bin Nayef, who was a crown prince before Mohammed bin Salman. And so he basically goes around Mohammed bin Nayef and creates, you know, a very strong tie with MBS. I think there was a certain amount of mentorship at the beginning, at least. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of evidence that, you know, he basically 
paved the way for MBS into Washington. You know, the Emirates, uh, you know, obviously has a very successful lobbying operation, a lot of longstanding relationships in Washington, and that they sort of allowed MBS to take advantage of that, to introduce himself to Washington and kind of, you know, make people, make people there aware of who he was. Uh, and, I, and I think that helped, you know, I think that helped when MBS was on his way up. It helped in his rivalry with Mohammed bin Nayef. You know, whether people in the Emirates, you, you would be, it would be very difficult to get any Emirati official to acknowledge that there's been any sort of discomfort with some of the things that MBS has done since then. But I think it comes back to just the power differential between the two countries. I don't imagine that they were particularly excited when, you know, with the forced resignation of Hariri. Um, you know, we've seen the Emirates drastically scale back their involvement in Yemen. You know, I think that was, they also realized that this is, uh, you know, this is something that we don't want to be involved in forever. And so they've changed their posture there. But again, like, you know, people have said, oh, there's going to be this big breakup and, you know, the Emirates is going to dump Saudi or vice versa. I mean, I don't buy any of that because at the end of the day, they still have a huge number of overlapping strategic issues that they agree on and, you know, shared interests in the region. When it comes to Qatar, I mean, I think, I mean, to think both of them were, you know, I don't really have the reporting to say that the Emirates were more ticked off with Qatar than Saudi Arabia was. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, I, I think that kind of those more traditional powers were, you know, they always kind of looked at Qatar as this tiny little country that was <clears throat> sort of punching above its weight class with Al Jazeera and encouraging these protest movements all across the region and things like that. And so, um, you know, I think they both saw it as, you know, we need to put these people back in their place or they're going to continue to cause us a headache. Um, and in terms of where it goes in the future, you know, I don't know about, the, I don't know in the future, but we, we really don't seem to be seeing much effort anymore really on either side to resolve it. I mean, it is something that I think the Trump administration has tried to get involved in a number of times. And, you know, how do we get these guys talking to each other again? And, you know, we hear about it every now and then, but it never seems to go anywhere. I think the, the Qataris have done a, you know, a surprisingly good job at sort of figuring out how to survive without, you know, relations with their nearest neighbors. So I don't think that they're quite under the same pressure to make concessions as they may have felt like they would be at the beginning. And I think that the Saudis and the Emirates, they just figured like, well, it wasn't a huge loss for us. So we'll just kind of keep things the way that they are. So from where we sit now, it looks like this is going to be part of kind of the regional layout for a while. There might eventually be some kind of breakthrough, but, but at this point, it doesn't appear to be very dynamic. I guess turning to, to another part of the region, um, there's been a lot of talk about the future relationship and the existing relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Um, so the, I guess there are no official ties, but we've seen a shift from Israel being kind of a common enemy uh, to, to Iran being that common, common enemy. Um, so how do you see this moving forward? And, and you know, how do you share, how do you kind of um, uh, sell that relationship to the domestic audience in Saudi Arabia as well, especially in the context of, of annexation? Um, there's another related question about Saudi Arabia's role in uh, Jared Kushner's Middle East plan. So I mean, kind of where, where do we see the Saudi-Israeli relationship moving forward and, and kind of how how will that be changed I suppose in the given the current contest context yeah I mean I I think sort of the, the the quickest answer is to say that there 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 is a dramatic shift going on in the way that Saudi Arabia views Israel it's happening slowly but it's become impossible to deny um, you know they still don't have diplomatic relations we still have not seen you know Saudi officials meeting with Israeli officials or, you know, NBS meeting with Netanyahu or anything like that. And I don't think we probably will for a while. Um, they, you know, what we have seen is really a dramatic change in the rhetoric about Israel from Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia for decades, you know, including by King Salman before he became king, you know, they would, you know, 
the position was always that Israel was a usurper in the region. I mean, this was a state that had come in and taken Arab land away from the Palestinians, and we support the Palestinian cause. And you'd had, you know, over the decades, various fundraising, fundraising campaigns, some of them led by King Salman himself, um, before he became the monarch, you know, to raise money for the Palestinians. I mean, this was just sort of like bread and butter politics inside of Saudi Arabia. And MBS has had a very different tone, uh, both publicly and privately when he talks about it. I think publicly the most significant thing he said was in an interview with Jeffrey Goldberg at The Atlantic magazine in, I think it was 2018, where he just basically said, yeah, both the Israelis and the Palestinians have the, have the right to their own land. And, um, and then he sort of talks about Israel in almost this complimentary fashion, saying, you know, we have shared interests on Iran. And, and he kind of imagines this future where Israel is just another country in the region that has trade ties and diplomat, you know, that has, you know, overlapping interests with other countries in the region. And this is something that just people didn't talk about before, the possibility that Israel could just be kind of another country that you dealt with the way that you dealt with Jordan or Egypt or whatever. And, um, and then we know in private, you know, I mean, I have reporting in the book about private meeting that private meetings that MBS had with U.S. officials where he just basically said, like, listen, Israel's not our enemy. We don't, we, you know, Israel is not killing Saudis. Um, you know, we don't really see, and, and, and then at the same time, you just have strategic interests aligning between Saudi Arabia. Now, if you're Saudi Arabia and you're mostly worried about Iran and the region, then you look around the region for who your allies are going to be on that. Like, well, the Israelis, they're, they're sort of the people around who hate Iran as much as you do. They have a very strong intelligence service, a very strong military. And so, you know, there's a lot to be done there. Um, you know, where it's going to go, it looks like, you know, there was a period where it seemed to be accelerating. Now it seems like it's kind of, you know, sort of slowed down. Um, it looked like annexation was going to be a bridge too far that, you know, they, the, the, the Gulf countries in general in Saudi Arabia, you know, when sort of they, you know, they moved that, moved the embassy to Jerusalem, you know, annexed the Golan Heights, these things, there was, you know, they, all the Gulf, you know, they, they issued condemnations, but there was nothing that really had any teeth to it or, or anything like that. It looks like annexation would have been a much harder pill for them to swallow. It hasn't happened yet. And so we'll kind of have to see how that works out. But, but in general, we just don't see that kind of gut level rejection of Israeli presence in the region or even sort of the possibility that we can have relations with them that we've seen historically. And so that will likely eventually bear fruit, but it's just hard to tell exactly what the timeline is. Great. And I guess I'm um, going back to, to Khashoggi. I mean, just this week, the UK foreign office announced sanctions on I think it's 49 groups and individuals um, for violating human rights, including Saudis involved in, in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. So but nonetheless, the UK continues selling arms to Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, is this basically kind of kind of a means of, of the UK expressing rhetorically dis, discontent with what's happening with this within the Saudi regime, uh, but really, you know, not changing policies substantially or substantively? Um, and the, the question also says kind of in terms of, of relationships with the US as well as with the UK, has Khashoggi's murder, I mean, had any lasting impact or are we seeing kind of it sliding downstream in, in terms of, you know, now, especially given the economic situation worldwide, there's more of a need than ever to kind of sell arms to the Saudis. Um, so yeah, how do you, how do you see the, the impact of Khashoggi's killing uh, going forward? Yeah, I mean, I'm less familiar with the thinking on the UK side, just in terms of, you know, why the decision was made now to sanction these people. I mean, I do think that there was, I do think that there's been a general sense that just this particular crime was so egregious that, you you know, people had to do something about it. Um, but, but then, but not quite to the extent of sort of overturning the entire bilateral relationship. And, you know, the UK, just like the US, you know, they have longstanding ties on many levels with Saudi Arabia that go back decades. And so, 
nobody seemed quite willing to sort of overthrow, you know, throw the whole thing out. But, but, I, but it does seem like they, you know, they did feel like we need to sort of draw a line in the sand at this kind of an operation um, just to really show that there's going to be consequences. I mean, and in terms of sort of what the lasting costs are, I mean, I think that people, there was, you know, there was a lot of speculation after the murder happened that, you know, King Salman is going to remove MBS or that other people in the royal family are going to, you know, try to get together and push him out. And like that, I don't, for me, was never in the cards. I never really saw that happening. I just didn't, you know. I, ne I never really thought it was going to happen. And, um, and I also just didn't think like that it was going to sort of undo the entire U S Saudi relationship, which has you know, been around for a very long time on many different levels. And for me, the last thing of, and also the idea that sort of MBS was going to stand trial or, you know, end up in the Hague or anything like that. It just seems very unrealistic, but I do think that there's been a cost. I think it's been much more, I think the biggest casualty has been much more to the things that MBS wanted to do than the things that he was actually doing. And, and, and I think that the instructive way to look at it is to go back to the trip that he took to the U.S. That I, he actually did two trips. He went to the U.K. first. I think it was, in, it was sometime in the spring 2018. But he went and he you know, met the heads of MI5, MI6. He went to Parliament. He met the foreign minister. Um, you know, and then he like, met with the queen. You, know, you can go on, you know, go Google MBS Queen Elizabeth, and you find this picture of this gigantic MBS towering over Queen Elizabeth. And you know, he was just, he was received like royalty. And then he goes to the U.S. and he has this dramatic trip where he meets all these people all across the country and gets photos taken and this and that and whatever. And that's what I think is gone. You know, I think that the arms people, they'll continue to sell arms to Saudi Arabia unless somehow, you know, Congress finds a way to block it. Oil industries, obviously, you know, nobody can sort of get around Saudi Arabia's importance to the world oil industry. And so that's always going to continue that, you know, they're not going to be able to get rid of that. But when you listen to the way that Mohammed bin Salman has talked about the future of the kingdom and the things that he, the new things that he wants to develop, you know, he saw the U.S. as a model for this. And I think you really see it in kind of the investment that he put in trying to build these relationships. I mean, he took two trips to Silicon Valley to visit Mark Zuckerberg. He went once and there's photos of him putting on an HR, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, but, you know, putting on a headset and doing these various things, you know, I mean, he traveled all the way across the U.S. to meet all these people who are not government officials, but who are, you know, tech people, philanthropists, uh, you know, cultural figures. He went to Hollywood and he hung out with like Rupert Murdoch and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And, and, and there was, at the time, there was a lot of enthusiasm, I think, in, in these circles. They, they kind of said, okay, well, we never really thought about Saudi Arabia before. Um, it seems like this, this person is very legit and he wants to really do positive things. You know, he wants to empower women and get rid of some of these, you know, unfortunate, you know, sort of these, um, what do you want to say, you know, hyper-conservative religious things that have bothered us before. And there's really a lot of enthusiasm. There were almost no deals signed during that trip. But I think that there was a genuine curiosity in a lot of these circles about who is this person? What is he doing? Is there some role that we can play in it? And I think that's what got killed with Jamal Khashoggi. You'll still have certain companies that will get involved in Saudi Arabia because there's money to be made and things like that. But I think if you're, if you're Bill Gates or you're Mark Zuckerberg, or certainly if you're Jeff Bezos, there's just not a lot to be gained by sitting down for a photo op with Mohammed bin Salman right now. I mean, I think his, his name has become a bit toxic, um, you know, and for anybody in the business community who wants to do business in Saudi Arabia, and certainly in these kind of historically unconventional fields, there's a whole risk calculation that you have to do now to what's the effect on my brand going to be that, that you just didn't have before when he was really seen as this visionary, as this visionary figure. And I think, I mean, one thing that you, you mentioned, one of the ways that MBS became so popular, I think, in the West, especially, was the way he dealt with the Wahhabi Uleman, the way he talked about Wahhabism as well. In that Atlantic um, interview, I think he says, you know, there is no such thing as Wahhabism. That's not 
what we have. And, and so I guess I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the, the changing relationship between the Saudi monarchy as an institution and, and the Wahhabi ulema under um, MBS. And I guess related to that, I mean, as you mentioned, MBS did give women the right to drive, um, has also kind of changed the guardianship laws, but he's also jailed a lot of uh, feminist activists. So is this kind of a way of balancing between more liberal and more conservative demographics within Saudi Arabia? Um, kind of, or, or has he kind of used women's rights just as a means to, to get kind of some good press in, in the West? Um, yeah, I guess, how do you see that moving forward? Yeah, on the religious, I mean, on the religious side, again, it's, it's, it's quite opaque, sort of exactly what's going on. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's true. It certainly has not been true for, if it was ever true, it's certainly not been true for many decades that sort of the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia and the royal family were equal partners in rule. I mean, I, they, you know, the, the religious establishment certainly had a role, but they were definitely junior partners. And there are plenty of examples of sort of the, the, the royals twisting the arms of the clerics to sort of get them to do what they needed them to do. Um, you know, the most notable would be during the Gulf War, basically forcing them to put out a fatwa saying it was okay for American military to come into, come into the kingdom, which is something that none of these clerics wanted to do, but they did it because, you know, they have to be there to sort of support the monarchy. Um, you know, I mean, and, and we, what I would be most curious about and what I think there's the least reporting on is really how this has affected kind of Saudi's international kind of missionary activities. I mean, this is something that they've been doing for decades. And a lot of it is sort of, you know, officially non-governmental, but sort of backed unofficially by the government through various channels. And it's always been kind of murky. And I don't, I would love to see better reporting on how exactly that has changed since Mohammed bin Salman came to the fore. What's happened to some of these organizations that used to do a lot of the, you know, quote unquote, exportation of Wahhabism to Southeast Asia, parts of Africa, parts of, you know, other parts of Asia. There's just not, from, from what I've seen, like very good sort of detailed reporting on it. Um, in terms of the women's rights stuff, um, I mean, there are certainly plenty of Saudis who will make the argument that, you know, MBS is doing something that's very difficult domestically. And if he's going to give women these rights, he sort of has to make some concessions to the religious class or they're going to rise up against them. And so that's why he's arrested some of these women. It, it's, I, you know, there are plenty of people who would make that argument. Um, I think there's also an argument to be made that he's just an authoritarian. And that, you know, he wants, if women are going to get the right to drive, he wants to get credit for being the person who made that happen. And he sort of doesn't want people to look to some of these, you know, women activists who spend a number, you know, spend a lot of time sort of doing campaigns on Twitter, doing driving campaigns inside the kingdom to get credit for that. And he also doesn't really want to send a message that if there are things that you don't like or regulations that you would like to see changed, you can go out and become an activist and sort of bring about the change that you want to see. I think it's, you know, definitely wanted to send a message saying, you know, don't get any ideas here. When change comes, it comes from the top. But I also think, you, you also mentioned the PR thing. I also think it, I also don't think that these reforms are, they're not for the West. I mean, I, I'm sure that Saudi Arabia, I'm sure that Mohammed bin Salman would like to get some benefit because he knows that these, these things did bother people in the West. And, you know, the State Department has been complaining about, you know, the women driving issue for decades. But I don't think that's the primary. I mean, I don't see any reason to sort of doubt his sincerity in wanting to change these things. Um, you know, we can certainly disagree on sort of some of the authoritarian means used along the way. But I don't think he, it's not like he didn't want to change these things and he did it because he thought it was going to look good in the West. Right. And also, I guess, getting women into the workforce is, is something that he wants to do, according to Vision 2030, kind of needs to do. So giving them the right to drive is... is helpful in that in that sense. I mean, I guess kind of relatedly, I mean, as 
Saudi Arabia lurches forward increasingly towards authoritarianism, which segment of Saudi society is most likely to resist MBS? And, and another kind of related question is about kind of how far people and especially young people are able to discuss kind of social and political aspirations inside Saudi. Um, kind of is there, are there kind of pockets of resistance? I mean, I know you haven't been there in a bit of time, but um, you know, kind of where would you see these pockets forming? And, and one thing that I wonder about is this growing uh, diaspora population of, of young Saudis potentially who you know, don't want to return because they, they have kind of issues with how things are being run. Do you see that as being a potential lever of, of pressure um, on MBS moving forward? So, uh, sorry, what was the first, I should have written those down in order. Oh, sorry, I went, I, I went, on, a, <laughs> went on a tangent. But yeah, I mean, kind of which segment of Saudi society is most likely right, to okay. resist MBS, I guess was the first question. And kind of, can young people inside, inside or even Saudis outside of, of the kingdom exert some kind of pressure on MBS's policies, I suppose, moving forward? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I wish I had better answers. I mean, I haven't been there since 2018. And even even so, I mean, anybody who would sort of be trying to work against MBS would be doing so very, very quietly right now. Um, you know, they, they wouldn't be sort of calling up the New York Times to talk about it, probably. Um, it's, it's, it's just really hard to predict, you know, um, where it could come from. Is it going to come from conservative parts of society that had really felt like, you know, that that the kingdom stood for something before that it stood for this, you know, very traditional and very sort of austere interpretation of Islam and, and that it was supposed to be this beacon to the Islamic world. And then it gave that up by letting women drive and having movie theaters and concerts, you know, where people, and I'm, you know, it's not like all the people who believe that just disappeared in 2015, you know, there are plenty of them still there. They just realized that if you talk about it too loudly, you could go to jail, <laughs> you know, will they find some way to sort of mobilize or have they just gotten the message because so many of them have been arrested or, you know, kind of disempowered in other ways that they can't do. It's, you know, very hard to predict, certainly from as far away as I am. In terms of the youth, I mean, I do think that, you know, MBS is certainly interested in the support of the youth. Um, you know, are there ways that they can, you know, there, there's, you know, I, I don't really know. I mean, are there ways for them to sort of communicate what they want up to the royal court? You know, there's just not, not a lot of sort of clear pathways and stuff. Um, but I, you know, I don't think that's because MBS sort of doesn't want to sort of work in the direction that would be good for them. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, he's somebody who, you know, he has, he's, he has very great self-confidence. He's, you know, has sort of, you know, at least throughout the process has had sort of a big reliance on all of these, you know, international consultants and things like that. They're going to be the ones to tell me how to do this. And, you know, I'm sure that there have been informal ways that they've opened up to try to keep in touch with Saudi young people, but it's just hard to tell how much of that ends up being self-selecting because, you know, people who are going to tell, you know, he's the, he's the most powerful person in the country. Like if you, if you're a young Saudi and you meet with the crown prince, you're going to tell him what he wants to hear. Um, so anyway, it's, it's really hard. I mean, the diaspora issue, it's certainly a headache for them. Um, you know, they don't like to have people abroad who are free to talk about things that they don't like or criticize or write. I mean, it's obviously one of the things that really bugged them with Jamal Khashoggi was the fact that he had been an insider for most of his career and then all of a sudden, here he is, you know, sitting outside of Washington, D.C. and writing these very critical columns in one of the most important American newspapers. I mean, it was something that, you know, bugged them enough that they dispatched this team to Turkey to take care of them. So, you know, I, I think the numbers are still really small when you look at the number of Saudis who have set up camp. I think a lot of people have set up camp outside. I and mean, there's certainly Saudis I know from my time there who've just gotten out of the kingdom. They've found ways to get jobs abroad, go for graduate degrees, you know, things like that, just to kind of like get abroad so they can kind of breathe a little bit and get through this period. And I don't think most of those people are interested in kind of outright political activism. 
Um, you know, I think the numbers would need to be a lot greater for it to be like a major threat. It's certainly a headache for them. And the Saudis have gone to, in some cases, quite remarkable extent to try to bring these people back or shut them down or quiet them, you know, whether it's campaigns to try to hack their phones and things like that. Um, you know, if, if they can, you know, I, and I do think it has effects kind of on the allied governments. I think, you know, having a number of these people in London making a lot of noise and talking to British officials is not something that the Saudis love and, you know, having people in the U.S. as well who are critical, you know, certainly isn't something that they love. I mean, will it, again, at what point will it sort of, you know, turn into a major, major channel for pressure on, you know, Mohammed bin Salman? It's, it's just hard to tell. You mentioned the role of international consultancies um, in under MBS because I mean we had kind of Ministry of McKinsey, all of these Western consultancies entering into the kingdom. I mean, do you see that changing? You mentioned the the effect of the Khashoggi affair on on investor calculations in particular, and and are these companies still um, operating? And I guess relatedly, um, there's another question about kind of domestic investor business confidence um, since the Ritz episode and and subsequent crackdowns. I mean, is there a serious issue here in terms of inability to get um, you know, foreign direct investment, to have foreign companies involved in Saudi, or, or is this kind of, you know, a couple years past, uh, after uh, Jamal Khashoggi's death, less of a calculation? Right. Um, in terms of the consultant, it's actually a really good question. And I, I, I don't know how the engagement with the consultants has changed. And if it has, I mean, I'm sure COVID, had, I'm sure most of them got out, you know, any, anybody who was left, I'm sure they got out sort of as COVID was beginning. And so that certainly makes everything more complicated. But whether, you know, before COVID, there were sort of fewer consultants working at the Saudis had scaled back. It was something that was, there were indications at least that it was, it was quite unpopular domestically that Saudis, particularly educated Saudis said, you know, why are you going to all these, you know, Ivy League graduates and people working at McKinsey and bringing in these you know, bringing in these people to tell you what to do with the society. Why don't you talk to us? You know, we're educated and a lot of us have studied abroad and come home and, you know, we, we have a better understanding of the society and like how things could change and whatever. So, you know, I, I do, I feel like I've seen reporting about how they were scaling some of this back, but I, I can't really kind of quantify it. Um, and in terms of domestic investors, I mean, there was definitely in certain, I mean, again, the, the, the evidence that I've seen is all pretty anecdotal. I think after the Ritz that there, there was a lot of fear among a lot of wealthy Saudis, even people who didn't get caught up in the Ritz, that they could be next. And so you did see sort of massive capital outflows, people trying to get their money out of the country, putting it elsewhere, investing, you know, people buying homes in Turkey, buying property in London, things like that. Um, it's hard to sort of get a sense of exactly how large it is, but, um, but it also just makes sense. You know, I mean, if the, you know, the, the, the crown prince of the country just locked up, you know, I think it ended up being more than 400 people in the Ritz Carlton and, took their money away, or at least some of them took their money away in this very opaque process that didn't appear to have any clear legal basis. Um, you know, why would you keep huge amounts of money there when you could be next? I guess somewhat relatedly, um, one of these questions has to do with, you know, basically Saudi Arabia is not the only, by no means the only country in the Middle East um, where we're seeing increasing repression, you know, tightening of political space. Um, but I mean, one, one term that you talk about in the book is this kind of electronic authoritarianism we see in Saudi, increasing use of surveillance in particular. Um, so do you see this kind of as qualitatively different in Saudi Arabia as, as opposed to, you know, the rest of the region, or is this kind of a regional trend towards increasing authoritarianism? 
I mean, it's definitely gone up in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, and I think the term I use in the book is sort of before, you know, there was like a soft glove authoritarianism, you know, it was an authoritarian state, but it wasn't like Iraq under Saddam or Syria under Hafez al-Assad. You know, it was sort of like you were, you were expected to kind of keep up appearances in public, but if in private circumstances you wanted to complain about corruption or, you know, nobody was really, you know, as long as you weren't sort of trying to organize politically or organize a demonstration or getting involved in jihadism or other kind of violent activity. They didn't care all that much is my understanding. That's changed where I think people are very cautious now. I mean, even during my last trip, you know, I, I would get together with people and they would collect all the cell phones and put them in the fridge because they were worried about, you know, we don't know who in this group may have had their phone hacked and who could be listening in and things like that. And, um, you know, and there've been, a, you know, a number of cases that, technology researchers have investigated about, you know, Saudi phone hacking and things like that of dissidents. And so I would say it's qualitatively different, different inside the kingdom now than it was before. Across the region, we don't, you know, it's, I mean, that's the thing with hacking is that it's all covert. And so we don't have kind of a clear picture, but there's certainly, you know, we've had, you know, we know that the Lebanese government has, has been involved in these things. We know that UAE has been buying, you know, hacking tools. There's been, you know, countries across the region have been getting involved in this kind of stuff. And, and, I mean, I think it's not just even the Middle East, it's a global trend because these tools are, you know, just from a consumer standpoint are getting cheaper. There's more com companies that are making them, more people are carrying smartphones. And so more of these governments realize that it's, a, you know, a cost-effective way to sort of keep an eye on people. I guess also going back to kind of regional, regional relations, I mean, how do you see kind of the MBS, MBZ, view of the future of, of the GCC even? I mean, is it in the context of kind of, uni of a united Gulf state against kind of Iran or do you see it as kind of, I mean, how do you think that MBS sees kind of the GCC moving forward, especially given um, the, the rift with Qatar? Um, I mean, I think they would certainly like the GCC to sort of toe the line with them. I mean, the GCC, I would say, has always been kind of an under, you know, an under-realized tool. I mean, the idea was that you know, they were supposed to, you know, these countries were supposed to come together for shared strategic objectives and work together and things like that. But, you know, there have been, there just are not very many examples of countries in the GCC doing things that they didn't want to do individually because of the GCC. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's, you know, the Arab League is kind of a similar thing. It's like, you know, there's a lot of talking that goes on and whatever. But, you know, at the end of the day, most of these countries, in most cases would policy-wise do what they wanted to do. Um, you know, the, you know the, the sort of absence of Qatar from active GCC policymaking, it makes a difference. It's, you know, it look just in terms of the visual, it makes it look like a weaker, weaker body. I don't know how big of a priority it is for them to try to fix it or try to even sort of create an empowered GCC. Um, you know, there's probably other people, probably even you, Courtney, who, who have sort of a better view of sort of how their interactions are with some of the other smaller Gulf states. Um, you know, we certainly haven't seen them I mean, I think it's much more that they, they would like to get the GCC to come along with the policies that they want to do. And that's why they'll consider it a success. Certainly if you're Saudi Arabia and you're this much larger than everybody else, you know, you're not going to kind of compromise on policies because some of these smaller states are want to do things different, want to do things differently. Yeah, exactly. And even on Yemen, I, I mean, Saudi went ahead and did what it was going to do even without kind of all right. of the, the GCC on board. So it's, it's right. it hasn't really hindered the Saudis from doing what they, they wanted to do abroad. Um, and I conscious we've taken up a lot of, a lot of your time. I'm just going to ask one, one more question about kind of, how do you see, I mean, MBS's handling of the pandemic um, in Saudi? I mean, I know that one thing that, that we've talked about um, is, is kind of this idea that COVID-19 really 
um, kind of helps authoritarian governments because you do kind of have to have a very centered response and you know, issuing lockdowns and all of this. And so it is kind of beneficial to be more authoritarian. Do you think that Saudi has done like a good job and MBS in particular has done a good job in managing the, the pandemic, I suppose? Oh, I mean, I, I don't know how much of it, you know, how much of the COVID situation you can attribute to MBS. I mean, you know, um, I mean, Saudi Arabia is getting hit particularly hard. I mean, they do, you know, they have been reporting thousands of new cases a day and it's a terrible situation. Um, they have opened up, you know, they, they did have a lockdown and they've sort of loosened up all the restrictions. Um, my understanding is that's just primarily because they were worried about the economy of keeping everybody stuck at home. And, you know, they're already trying to go through this, you know, very, very challenging economic transformation. And so how are you supposed to even make any progress on that when you can't even keep the things that already exist afloat? Um, and I don't, I, I don't feel like with Saudi Arabia, I've heard any kind of specific things about kind of the authoritarian aspect of it. I mean, certainly in other states, you know, they've used that. I don't feel like I've heard any of that on Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I mean, they're, you know, I, I don't think that they're doing any worse than any certain number of American states, you know, that have like tried to figure out this balance between closing and reopening and what you do. And then you reopen and then you have a huge spike and what do you do? And, you know, I mean, look at poor Florida or Texas or, you know, so I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think I've seen any samples, you know, any examples of sort of MBS doing this much worse than all these other leaders, whether state leaders or national leaders who are really struggling with what is just a terrible, terrible situation for a policymaker. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, and do you have anything else, I guess, to add about the book or anything we didn't cover that you wanted to, to bring up? Um, no, and I, I don't know. I hope people read it. I mean, I know that all the discussion always, you know, I, I, you know, as I kind of said in the introduction, I was, you know, I was, I'd always wanted to find really good books about Saudi society, about like, what was it like to live there and what were people like and things like that. And I just kind of found many fewer books about that. And so from my time there, I tried to sort of mine my experiences from 2013 forward, going forward to really just kind of give a sense of, as much as I could, of like, who the people are, you know, what is that, you know, either religious people, conservative people that I got to know along the way. And, you know, much of that doesn't come up in the discussion because people are interested in the politics. But, um, you know, internally, Saudi is a much more diverse place than I think people expect in terms of people's views on things, people's opinions. I mean, I had some, you know, in some cases, just kind of mind-blowing conversations with either very conservative people who would say things that I just didn't expect, you know, things that religiously would bug them, and then other things that I wouldn't expect, they just wouldn't even care about. They just, it just wasn't even kind of on their radar. So I tried to include kind of as much of that, just to kind of give a sense of the society and whatever. And so I hope that, you know, people read the book, they can sort of learn something from that, in addition to kind of the macro-political stuff. Yeah, and I think the book does a, a great job of that. Of, of really, I mean, it's clear how much time you spent in Saudi Arabia. And I think it's also a really important book in that I don't know whether such books will be able to be written in the, for, in the, in the future, given restrictions on access, especially for foreign journalists. Um, so I think it's a really important read. Um, it's available on Amazon and most, most bookstores. So I highly encourage uh, giving it a read. Um, and thank you so much, Ben, for joining us. And thanks to everyone else for joining us and for your questions. Um, and we will uh, see you guys at the next event. Thank, hey, you. thank you.